In this reading, we encounter two women who carry promises and a battle cry for liberation, for hope, and promise. A reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped up in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and God has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promise he had made her. Mary said, with all my heart, I will glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. God has looked with favor on the low status of the Creator's servant. Look. From now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is the name of God. The divine shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors God. God has shown strength with his arm. God has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. God has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. God has come to the aid of God's servant Israel, remembering the mercy of God, just as God promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. Glory to God. And now, good and gracious God, in these moments together, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you this morning and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking just yesterday with my friend Rochelle Howard, uh, who just returned this week from a visit to the Holy Land. It's been many years since I traveled to Israel, and I loved hearing Rochelle talk yesterday of some of the places she visited, including Bethlehem, the place where tradition says Jesus Christ was born in a cattle stall. And something that she said yesterday that also struck me when I was there uh, in that place is that even though now there is uh, an ornate, beautiful Greek Orthodox church built over that site, the entrance to that little stone cave itself, the actual place of Jesus' reported birth, is quite low. The door by where you enter, the door by which you enter the place where they say he was born has been made only about four feet high. And unless you are a child or extremely small, you have to bend down to go in. You have to bow your head and you have to bend your knee and make yourself small to enter the place where the Savior was born. And isn't that about right? 
And isn't that what God did? When God came to us, God came down very low. God arrived not just in human flesh, but in the smallest, most helpless human flesh. And if that was true for God of heaven and earth, it's also true for people. It's the little ones of this world who are the first to receive the gift that God comes to bring because the door is small. And those who would enter in and see him for themselves are those who would come down low. Those who are large with power or position or prestige, those whose necks never bend, they never see him. Children go in. People whose hands are empty go in. Those who are busted and broken and bereaved go in through that low door, leaving the inflated ones milling around outside, looking just a little bit puzzled. Now, it's a matter of record that whenever Jesus found people who were too puffed up and full of themselves, his first ministry to them usually was to pop their balloon and bring them back down to earth. But far more often than Jesus said to prideful people, get over yourselves, come down from there, he was always saying to the deflated, the defeated, the weak, the poor, the shamed, and the sick, come up. Let me lift you out of smallness. You are a child of the living God. And you know who understands this better than anybody else in the Christmas story? Mary. Mary shows us a God who lifts up little people. As a woman, and especially a young, single, poor woman, Mary has no voice in her world. She has no legal status apart from a man. She certainly has no education. That was reserved for boys and for men. But now she hears this new voice. God's very own messenger has found her and lifted her up with the news that in her very body is going to live God's own Messiah. And after a brief objection, um, Gabriel, I have, have never been with a man, to which the angel replies, nothing is impossible with God, Mary. She gives back the astonishing answer, I am God's servant. Let it be with me exactly as you have said. And she runs to tell this astonishing news to her cousin Elizabeth, who also is expecting a miracle. Late in life, Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to have a baby that they've prayed for and waited for for years. And when these two women meet, the baby inside of Elizabeth starts kicking and turning somersaults for joy. And Elizabeth blesses Mary and the baby in her womb. And now Mary, who's had this song inside of her for so long, is finally free to let it out. And she begins to sing. My soul magnifies the Lord, she said. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God has looked with favor on my lowliness. And all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Exquisite words from the lips of this little one. The problem is, the Magnificat, which is what we've come to call Mary's song, is a little bit like some of the hymns in our hymn book. It's beautiful, 
but you don't always want to sing all the verses. As Mary continues to sing, we realize that this perfectly nice hymn has some pretty sharp words for those of us who are still too full of our own importance and power. Mary starts popping balloons in this hymn. In the strength of his arm, he has scattered the proud, brought the powerful down from their thrones, has lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich empty away. This is a gutsy song for a teenage girl to sing. These are the words of a prophet. Mary is singing for all the vulnerable ones. God, she says, has come to take up residence in the world, and the place God chooses to make a home is with the small, the empty, and the ignored. Mary's song reminds me of something I heard a beloved former pastor here say once. I've shared this with you before. Chuck Poole said this a number of years ago. Chuck once said that if you take a perfectly smooth Bible and place it on a perfectly flat table in a perfectly level building, wonder of wonders, right before your eyes, that Bible will slowly begin to lean. I know it sounds strange, he said, but try it for yourself and you'll see even a perfectly smooth Bible sitting on a perfectly flat table in a perfectly level room will in fact tilt and lean toward those who struggle the hardest, those who suffer the most, those without a voice, those who live in the margins under the boot of the powerful. This morning, we're gathered beneath God's promise of justice to all for whom fairness has been in short supply. You know, in the Bible, there are what we might call soft words and there are hard words. Scripture is full of words that if you listen to them, you feel comforted and relieved. They're words you can curl up in like a blanket. But other words in the Bible feel a little more like a rock. These are hard words, and usually they're not so comforting. The thing is, how we feel about these words landing on our ears depends entirely on where we happen to be standing in the larger scheme of things. If we're one of the world's little ones, then all this talk about justice comes as nothing but relief. But if we're one of the powerful ones, the inflated ones whose hands happen to be full— then justice may come as a hard word indeed, even a threatening word. Maybe this is why so many Christians and churches in North America especially prefer acts of compassion over the work of justice. I want to be quick to say I am for compassion and mercy and kindness, and God is for these things. My message next week is about nothing but And yet, if our acts of compassion preoccupy us to the point that we neglect the work of justice, then we find ourselves out of step with Jesus and the prophets, including the prophet Mary, whose mighty words we've heard this morning. I imagine most of us in this room are familiar with the difference between justice and charity. You may have heard that little parable that's often used to illustrate the difference. It goes something like this. A town situated at the edge of a river 
finds itself confronted every day by a number of bodies floating downstream in the river. And the townsfolk tend to the bodies and minister to those still alive and respectfully bury the dead. They do this for years with good hearts. But through all those years, not one of them ever journeys up the river to investigate why there are wounded and dead bodies floating in the river each day. All the charity and compassion of the townsfolk are not changing the situation that's bringing them the wounded. And the point of the parable is not that we shouldn't be compassionate and charitable. The point is that compassion alone is not enough. It's a start. It's a good start. Sometimes, though, generosity can be and often is a substitute for and even a means of avoiding the need for a more just and equitable system and structure around us. Charity, admirable as it is, is not yet justice. Compassion, inspiring as it is, is not yet fair policy that allows the most vulnerable in the land to step out of poverty. And even philanthropy, generous as it is, may allow us to confuse the charity we offer with the justice God demands of us. The Canadian Catholic priest Ron Rollheiser offers a different but similar parable as the one I mentioned just now. He says, imagine that I'm a good-hearted person who feels a genuine sympathy for the homeless in my city. And as the Christmas season approaches, I make a large donation of food and money to the local food bank. Further still, he says, on Christmas Day itself, before I sit down to my own Christmas dinner, I spend several hours helping to serve a holiday meal to the homeless. My charity here is admirable, and I can't help but feel good about what I've done. And what I've done is a good thing. But, he says, when I support a politician or a policy that privileges the rich at the expense of the poor, then I can point to my charity and rationalize that I do have a heart for the poor, even as My vote itself helps ensure that there will always be homeless people to feed on Christmas Day. The preacher's gone to meddling now. The great Jewish prophets who were the forerunners of Jesus all had something to say to this effect. They said, they said it mostly to people of faith and they said this, they said the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how widows, orphans, and immigrants, the three most vulnerable groups in that society, fared while you were alive. And when Jesus described the judgment at the end of Matthew's gospel, he said our judgment won't be concerned with right doctrine, good theology, church attendance, or even personal piety, but about how we treated the most vulnerable. So what do we do, we who would be just? I want you to notice that Mary doesn't tell us today what to do. Neither Mary nor Jesus gives us a blueprint. They don't give us a political party or a platform. 
They point to the way of God and leave it in our laps and in our hands to work out. Here it is, they said. Here is God. Here is God's will. Deal with it. Now, given the facts of industrialism and globalism, the issues of poverty and wealth are more massive and complicated now than they ever were in Mary's day. And so a faithful response to the poor now involves not only some clear decisions about our own personal spending habits and giving habits, but also commitments to changing systems and structures that lay burdens on the backs of the poor. And so this has implications for who pays how much tax and what constitutes a living wage and the availability of affordable housing for the poor and access to health care. And if we don't hear the gospel speaking to these issues, well, it's not the gospel of Jesus and Mary and the prophets we've been hearing. None of us in this room is able to right every injustice, and God isn't asking us to. God is calling us to pay attention and to be involved and to pray. I love what Parker Palmer has said about this because some folk, let's be honest, get a little agitated when they say, not again. And, you know, the church is all talk and no action. All, only prayer in the, in the sanctuary that never translates beyond the doors. And what Parker Palmer said about that was this. He said, and Parker Palmer is a Quaker elder and author. He's written and spoken about his own work for justice over many, many decades. And he said this. He said, for me, the answer begins within and then moves out to the, to the world. I must, he said, own up to my fears, confess my ignorance and my arrogance, seek forgiveness from those I've wronged, practice humility, and learn to listen beneath my own and other people's political rhetoric for what Howard Thurman called the sound of the genuine in each of us. Beneath the shouting, he said, there's suffering. Beneath the anger, fear. Beneath threats, broken hearts. Start there, he said, and maybe we'll get somewhere. Well, this morning I want to end with a pastoral word to any and all of you in the room today who are feeling, as Mary did, like one of the ignored of this world. And they're all around us. Maybe something or someone told you that you've got nothing worthwhile to say in this world, nothing special to offer, nothing significant to become. And maybe you've blown it enough or failed enough that you actually believe it and you've given up. And if that's your story today, then would you please hear the good news? It's not too late for anybody to hear what Mary heard that night. Hello, favored one. Don't be afraid. Because with God, nothing is impossible. And maybe you can hear Christ himself whispering to you, get up. Come out of regret or fear or anger or grief or addiction. The things that are keeping you in despair. Look to me, he's saying to us today. I got up out of death. 
And in doing so, I opened a door for you that no one may ever shut. And friends, that sounds like mighty good news to me. And so, Lord God, would you put Mary's song into every heart in this room? Give us faith now to get up with Christ and to leave behind all shame and littleness and hopelessness. And then let us join you out in this world you love in the hard and hopeful work of justice, trusting you to go before us, opening doors that no one may shut. In the name of that Christ we pray, amen.